Hello, welcome back to Clinician's Brief Partner Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Berlin, and I'm honored to be joined today by Dr. Margie Shirk. Welcome, Dr. Margie. Hey, lovely to be here, Katie. Thank you so much to Clinician's Brief for inviting me. Thank you so much for coming. In today's conversation, which is made possible by our friends at Royal Canin, we're going to be chatting about a subject that is near and dear to our hearts in small animal practice, which is urinary disease in cats, and specifically why it can be such a challenge to manage. But before we dive in, uh, Dr. Margie, would you please give us a little background on yourself and how you found yourself in feline practice? Well, I found myself in feline practice by a sort of a circuitous route. From age about three on, I knew I was going to be working with animals. Uh, and I was always the person that people would bring their, the frog from their garden or the whatever from their wherever to our house for me to take care of. But I never, ever considered veterinary medicine. I always wanted to do ethology. I always wanted to look at what makes an individual act the way they do. And so my um, role models were Jane Goodall and Conrad Lawrence. And in just studying the gooseness of a goose or the gorilla-ness of a gorilla or the chimpness of a chimp. And the so it's the, the just that who, what makes that individual unique. And I was the only one who was apparently surprised when after two years of, of zoology, I decided, you know, I'd gone, I, I had done some, uh, looked at the spines on cockroach legs, disarticulated cockroach legs, and found that they actually disarticulated. So not, a, not attached to a living being, they, what, they would respond oscillometrically to different sounds, but only to a particular spectrum of sounds that could be that correlated with predators. And so I could see myself, you know, I, I was sort of thinking, well, yes, I could become the world's expert on this, the molecule on the tip of the spine of a cockroach leg as a hearing organ, or I could, uh, and I'd done the other extreme, I shoveled a lot of manure in, in horse barns. Excellent. And, um, Character building. Being a, you know, <laughs> being a, a female who ends up in veterinary medicine, but I'd never set foot in a veterinary clinic. So I thought, well, that's sort of the happy in between. It's sort of practical. It's, it's, you know, it's useful. It contributes sort of things. So, so, uh, I was the only one who was surprised at that. Everybody else knew, always knew I was going to be a veterinarian. So, and, and then after I wanted to do large animals, I had no interest whatsoever in fluffy and Fido. I only had, I was only interested in, in large animals and totally not interested in people, but anyways, <laughs> and, and, and ended up in a, uh, doing locums or relief work, uh, in, um, of, of multiple practices and found that when I was at the SPCA, which was a really great experience, I learned a lot about surgery and that all you have to do is extend the, if something's bleeding, extend the incision. Uh, yep. <laughs> you learned that the hard way. <laughs> and uh, and that the, the dog barking drove me nuts. And that's what made me think, if this is driving me nuts, how, how are the cats coping? Yeah. And so that's really what led me to feline practice. And that was way back in like 85. Uh, and so I was the third cat practice in North America, possibly in the world, 1986. So really having to create as I, as I went, 
I love that story because I feel like I always think of feline practitioners as people who got into feline practice just because they really like cats. And you got into feline practice at least partly because you knew the cats that you saw would be happier. Uh, and I love that so much. I grew up with cats and not dogs. So Likewise. dogs are a late yeah. addition to my yeah. life and I love my dog. But cats definitely are, um, the, the catness of a cat yeah. is very individual indeed. So I do love that story so much. And, you know, so clearly you've been, you've been doing this a while and you are familiar with today's topic, which is, <laughs> uh, which is a common one in general practice, feline or no, uh, which is urinary disease. And specifically, I guess we should narrow that down to lower urinary tract signs or lower urinary tract disease, because there are obviously a lot of urinary diseases that we see in cats. And uh, some of them will show up very differently than what we're going to talk about, but we'll get into that more. Um, but, you know, one thing that I can tell just from having met you now and from all of the things that you've done and how the circuitous route that you took to get to feline practice, which I am a huge fan of the circuitous route. You always learn more that way. <laughs> if there's one thing that is required of us in clinical practice and to stay good and fresh at our jobs, it's that we have to stay curious. And I don't know that there's any area where staying curious is more important than when we're talking about helping cats because they do make us go looking for things. <laughs> yeah, they absolutely. I mean, and this is the thing is you have to try and think about things from try and imagine really what it might be like, what a cat's experience might be like, given rather than seeing it from our perspective. And, you know, for, for, for instance, did you know that the, like for us, our most prominent or arguably our most important sense is that of vision. And then, you know, maybe hearing and, and taste and like, or touch has got to be in the top there too, but, but smell is way down near the bottom. Mm -hmm. Whereas with, with cats, the surface area of the olfactory epithelium of a cat is 20 centimeters squared compared to in humans. Do you want to take a guess at what it is in humans? Oh my gosh. No, I'm sure it's minuscule. <laughs> yeah. It's two to four centimeters squared. Oh goodness. Yeah. yeah. So just imagine therefore what the experience is like it for a cat coming into a clinic where we know how noxious clinics can smell to us. Yeah. Now take that and magnify that tenfold or the like. And so uh, we have to be very aware of what the olfactory experience for a cat is like and be constantly, as well as the visuals, as well as, which is why, for instance, I don't wear scrubs. I don't wear lab coats. Um, I don't wear any of this stuff. Uh, the, the clinic looks like a living room. The clinic, yeah, um, um, I don't loom over a cat. You know, mm -hmm. I get down on the floor with them. Like all these sorts of things so that visually everything is as similar to, or, or is, it's obviously not home, but it's less different. I guess is would be the thing. So really, really important to be thinking about it from the uh, cat's point of view. And, you know, the cat friendly practice program is, it is, is about things like that. Not specifically about what I'm, I'm way off on okay, <laughs> outside the curve outlier when it comes to the way I do things, but, but it's, it's, a, it's about that sort of thing and, and how less restraint is more and other sorts of things. Cause you have to be thinking about it from the patient's point of view rather than our perspective. 
Absolutely. I, and we're definitely going to talk about that more today, um, I hope. And and that should be a theme, really, for any time we're talking about um, helping cats, because we don't want to torture them in the name of or helping them. Or dogs or anybody else. We need yeah. to be imagining it from their perspective. Dogs are much more similar to us, mm-hmm. being pack creatures, but yeah. Um, uh, still, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Okay, so before we get into a little bit more about um, how to work with cats from their point of view, I wanted to just see, Dr. Margie, if you could sort of start us off where we usually start, which is when a cat parent comes in with their kitty and they say to us, she's peeing outside the box and I just wanted to stop. And then they expect us to fix it. Yeah, expect to, expect us to, to fix it right away. And then and when you get to that question of and how long has this been going on for, and they tell you, Oh, it's been going on for uh, you know, like seven months, and you kind of internally you're just screaming because it would have been so much easier to deal with earlier. But right. let's, <laughs> let's get away from that and just get back to the client who's come in and says their cat's peeing outside the box and, and you, you know, need to find out how often this has been going on for how long it's been going on. Does kitty seem uncomfortable in, in any, any ways, any other changes, because those are the changes are this, the, the key to picking up the subtle signs of sickness in cats. Are there any other changes that they've, that they've noticed uh, in, in their cat? And let's say for instance, that they say that they're noticing that their cat is, and you're also asking about the, quantity and frequency Mm -hmm. of urine because to help narrow it down between it could be a toileting issue i.e the litter box is disgusting or the litter box is they've changed the type of box the box may be too small the box may be too maybe hooded when the cat doesn't want a hood or vice versa could be that it's in a location that the that the cat's feeling scared to get to because it's near a piece of equipment that makes random noises or because they have to go past where the dog or the noisy child or something went bang one time 700 years ago (laughs) in their imagination um whatever uh so getting away from from you know toiling issues to now we're you know now we're talking about other is is the cat distressed in other ways does the cat have lower urinary tract disease or signs of lower urinary tract problems. And we, we, you know, what we used to call FUS and then called um, FLUTD, and now we're sort of calling it LUTD. And we probably, according to Tony Buffington, should be just talking about lower urinary tract signs rather than lower urinary tract disease, because the term lower urinary tract disease implies that the disease is originating in the lower urinary tract. When what we now know, what with not just Pandora syndrome, but one subset of that, i.e. idiopathic cystitis, which is the number one cause for lower urinary tract signs, is that it's not a disease of the urinary tract. The urinary tract mm-hmm. is, the lower urinary tract is an innocent bystander of uh, um, this reflecting the cat's stress levels. So, what are the lower urinary tract signs? Well, of course, they're, you know, uh, strangurea, so straining to urinate, plaquuria, uh, small amounts, increased frequency, uh, hematuria, um, blood in, blood in the urine, which could be very, which could be grossly obvious, or it may be, uh, microscopic, in which case the client won't notice it. We won't notice it either. You know, these are the strangurea, let's see, and, and then periuria, peeing outside the litter box. And the cats are, doing this because like they pee outside the litter box because if they keep peeing in the litter box their stupid humans never going to notice that there's a problem 
<laughs> so whenever a cat is peeing outside the litter box, it takes a certain amount of courage and desperation because they uh, are desperately trying to tell us something's wrong. And that something's wrong could be that they are distressed physically or they're distressed psychologically. And it's and so we have to try and elicit in the history and history taking is the most important skill that we have. It's not pulling sam samples and interpreting them. It's collecting history followed closely by performing a really good physical exam. And in getting this history, we've, you know, we have, need to find out what is the frequency, um, uh, you know, and, and uh, the frequency, the volume, whether there's uh, any straining uh, and uh, all the other things that I, that I mentioned. So that's really important. And the, and the fact that people will, they don't, bring their cat in for what they perceive as being a behavioral problem, peeing outside the box. And we need to find out, is it just outside the box? I.e. is the back not bending enough right. uh, or the, or the hips or, or, or stifles not bending enough so that the kitties, you know, that the urine is falling outside the box or is it around the house? And that's, those are other di uh, discussions as well. And it's very important that we find this out to know whether it's arthritis or what might be going on there. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many questions to ask. And um, this is a place where being curious is really a bonus because we need to know all that information. And I think sometimes where we jump to conclusions as practitioners and say, well, they're being outside the box. It's, you know, whatever the the name of the syndrome is at that time. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, you got to stay current, just stay curious, just to stay current on that. But, yeah. um, but uh, you know, there's obviously so many, um, so many factors that can go into that behavior. Um, and I really think that that is a big takeaway for us, how you put that, that cats, it takes a lot of courage for them to actually show us that and to urinate where they don't actually naturally want to urinate and let us know that there's a problem because they know that that's not what makes them happy. It certainly doesn't make us happy. And so, that's a good way to communicate that to clients, I think, because um, so much of the time it's about like, why is my cat being naughty? And that's never the reason, yeah. but it's so hard to explain that sometimes. So I love that context. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the, the thing is they could be having problems and not be peeing outside the litter box. They may right. still be peeing in the litter box, which is why it's, it's a lovely clue when they, for us, you know, it's kind of like, aha, when they yeah. are outside the box. But when it's inside the box, we need to really hone down on the volume and the frequency. And that could be, that hopefully, if, if they're not using a clumping litter, that can be really hard to tell. And if there's yeah. 16 cats in the household, one of whom has has chronic kidney disease, or right. diabetes, uncontrolled diabetes or something, that gets to be, uh, or diabetes insipidus, that would be unusual. Mm, but anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> It get, that can get to be difficult. So being curious, I mean, what I like to see my job as being is, is I'm, you know, I'm a doctor detective kind mm -hmm. of thing. and it's, and it's, it's like, so it's all curiosity. It's all scratching below the surface, trying to figure out, oh, what makes this tick? And why did that happen? And let's see if we can start connecting some dots, but hopefully, and I always have to remind myself, keep the blinders off, keep the filters out, just keep asking questions and without being biased in my interpretation. Don't say, you know, don't expect to find, uh, here's another one. Um, so let's say you've got a cat with, um, you've got a cat who's got, you collect the urine sample by cystocentesis, 
let's say it's even an agitated cystocentesis, which is what I'm a proponent of. Um, you collect by an agitated cystocentesis and you find hematuria and you find struvite crystals and you find uh, an elevated urine pH. And so, you know, your conclusion is that the cat's got that the cause of the hematuria and the lower urinary tract signs, uh, other lower urinary tract signs is, are, is struvite crystalluria and you treat that nutritionally. Awesome. Works really well. Fantastic. But is that necessarily what the problem is or not? Because you still need to be asking yourself whether it could be something else. In fact, the healthy cat will have struvite crystals. A healthy cat on a high meat diet is going to have struvite crystals, is going to have an alkaline urine. That's how cats are built. Mm -hmm. So is that the question then becomes, is that pH and uh, are the struvite crystals relevant or is the only thing that's relevant the hematuria? Because right. then you know, we could in fact be dealing with a, a no, no crystal issues here, but in fact what we've got is somebody with idiopathic cystitis. Right. Which, you know, so you can't just jump in and assume it's assume it's one thing. By all means, start with nutrition. In fact, if we've got if it when it comes to a situation like a lot of times if you've got somebody where that well, he's been doing this for seven months and I've had it up to here. Because that's the sad thing, is more than seventy-five percent of people don't bring their cats with inappropriate elimination, mostly inappropriate urination, in to see you, in to see us until they've had it. Yeah. And at that point, you know, that's what they want you to fix it right now. And that even that's hard to do. So for absolutely, we want to go with nutrition. We want to go with a, a, a diet that's going to create a neutral pH urine, um, a dilute urine. Uh, so it's less, so the urine is um, less noxious on that, on the potentially damaged bladder wall and also dilute. So no, neither type of crystal can form. Um, so nothing super saturated. But we still need to be asking more questions. And sometimes just getting the cat away from the people is, is really helpful for both the people and also the cat. Because yeah. the, that, that bond has been, has been damaged and we need, to re, we need to rebuild it. And diet's going to take some time. And so we, you know, we, we may need to be looking at other things as well. So clearly these are far from black and white issues. I mean, I would say that, you know, nothing in medicine is black and white, but in this case, we know there are so many factors involved with why cats are presenting in this way. And we have the emotions of their people to, um, to navigate as well, because they're impatient by this point. But like you said, sometimes we have to get the cat away from the family just to try to figure out what's going on and take that urgency out of it. But that brings its own challenges because cats are not people. And as you said at the beginning, we have to make them feel as comfortable as possible and allow them to not be so stressed out that our helping them is worse than their disease. So um, <laughs> oh, we have a visitor, no one can see, but I wish they could see. It's very beautiful. <laughs> um, but can you talk a little bit about the challenges um, that your average practitioner, sort of your average general practitioner faces in using diagnostics and trying to treat cats in a busy hospital when they're not necessarily set up for feline-only practice, you know, doing things like a cystocentesis? Um, how do we make that less anxiety-inducing for the kitties? 
And maybe also for the people. Um, and for the people. Yeah. Yes, and for yeah. us. Yeah. Exactly. For us people too. Uh, so, so a couple of things. Uh, a lot of times when cats come in and they, well, almost always when they come in with lower urinary tract inflammation, be it from idiopathic cystitis, be it from struvite or calcium oxalate, urolithiasis, be it from, you know, any, anything under the sun, whatever, if they have an inflamed bladder, by definition, anytime urine comes down the chute from the kidneys, uh, through the ureters into the bladder, that bladder, if it's inflamed and the urine gets into it and it stretches, you want to empty it. So there's going to be small amounts, increased frequency. So uh, additionally, when the, when, if it's inflamed every time it stretches, it may bleed. And so you're going to have blood in the urine and straining because that inf inflammation implies pain as well. So hence the lower urinary tract signs. But because you've got this small amounts, increased frequency, a lot of times the bladder's empty. Yeah. And so that's why people are inclined to, heaven forbid, <laughs> Put them on antibiotics and change the diet. Okay, yeah. so I would say by all means, change the diet, but don't be putting them on antibiotics. Please, please, please. There is, a, and that's, a, that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, um, but the, what I like to do there is uh, because visualization is key in finding bladders, even in, especially if they've got a lot of chubby wub in, around their bellies. And so a long enough needle, um, patient, quiet, you know, gentle restraint, less is more with kitty, often with their front end up and their back end lateral, like twisted, because cats are, will struggle less if their front end is up because they feel more in control. So letting their front end be sternal, but doing a nice final twist because right. cats are really good at that. Yeah. And um, then, you know, do shaking that bladder, bladder up, uh, um, assuming, you know, you, you can find it at, before you put the needle in so that any sediment that's in there is uh, instead of being gravitationally away from where you're collecting, you're got, you've got a better chance of getting a nice um, urine, rep, more representative urine sediment. And I mean, there's lots of people, not just me, who can like get a, a bladder the size of a hazelnut, you know, I can feel mm -hmm. that and, and, and get that most of the time, but not always. And if I can't, then I, what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to change that. I'm going to put the cat on antispasmodics because that, again, from the cat's point of view, the only thing they care about is not the stupid diagnosis. They care about the fact that they're hurting. Yeah. So we need to, we need to do something about that. Antispasmodics, depending on what else might be going on, maybe an, an anti and single anti-inflammatory injection, those might be appropriate. And then I get the client to prepay for the urinalysis before they leave, because that way I'm going to get them back. Mm -hmm because they've prepaid for it. And so yeah. that I'm going to send that kitty's going to be comfortable. I've changed, I've changed diet. I've given the cat some sub Q fluids, uh, because I want to, um, uh, make sure that, uh, you know, and a decent amount, you know, 60 mils per kilo, um, because I, I want to dilute the urine and help them make more urine to flush whatever's going on out. And then we'll get them back in, in, you know, pre-book the appointment or, uh, oftentimes that'll be whenever the client can bring them, bring them in ideally first thing in the morning, but, uh, what, whatever works. And hopefully then we've, we've got a better, cause that way they can leave them with us if they don't have a nice full bladder, but I think that's really important to get the urine sample. Yeah. And it sounds like there are a lot of things that we can do before we get that urine sample if we aren't able to get it at that first visit. 
Okay. So uh, I, and I think that's a really good tip too, that you gave about the agitated cystocentesis, because that's not something that I always do. It, you know, if I was taught that it definitely has drifted away over time. And so I will definitely start doing that more um, because that in itself is not the stressful part for the cats, I'm no. sure. Um, no. And so it's worth it if we're going to get a better sample that way um, to just yeah. take that one extra little step. Yeah. That's yeah. A great just, tip. Just grasping the bladder, giving it a shake before you put the needle in. Yeah. And like, just like a snow globe, it stirs up the snow and then you've got a better chance of getting a good sample. Yeah. That's a wonderful tip. And, uh, you, you know, I did want to ask you, you have been saying that diet change is certainly one of the first things that you'll do in these cases, even if you're not a hundred percent sure um, what's going on in that bladder yet. What are our options there for sort of first line diet changes for? Well, I'm going to go with a, a diet that's going to create a, a neutral urine mm-hmm. um, pH. And ideally assuming Kitty is into canned food, I would prefer that it's canned because I want uh, more water yep. in in their diet. Certainly even the dry formulations are made in such a way that they will create a more dilute mm-hmm. urine sample or more dilute urine than other diets. And what I, I tend to do is I will give one can from each of the three big mm-hmm. brands, um, uh, Royal Canaan, uh, Aunt Hells and Purina, of, you know, the, the PVD line, I will give them a can of each and we just have, you know, Ziploc bags that we name, that we label um, sample of each of the drives so that the cat can, can choose. Uh, yeah. Because ultimately it's about, you know, if we just send home diets and say, you know, foods and say, feed this and the cat may go, huh? Yeah. I hate, you know, yeah. I hate kimchi. You know, if we were talking sushi, I'd be all over it, but I don't yeah. eat kimchi, you know, or, or if we were talking lasagna, I'd be all over it. But what do you think I am? You know, you know, yeah. or whatever, you know, right. it's just, it's just like, we're saying eat this and the cat may say, don't like it. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. we give them a choice within the, the you know, of, of diets with it. Don't get me wrong. Each of those diets, they're equivalent, but they have a, you know, they're not the same, but they have the, the similar reason for being. Yeah. Yes, um, for sure. We, we can have our own favorite diets to prescribe, mm-hmm. but it's not going to do any good if it sits in the bowl all day. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Because then the uh, client's going to feed whatever the cat wants and, and right. we're, we're, we're nothing. Right. Um, and that that brings me to the next topic that I was going to ask you about, because, you know, we've talked a lot about the the clinical signs we're seeing about the reasons that the clients are bringing cats in. We've talked about how we get our samples from the cats and what we're going to do in that first line of treatment. And there are many conversations in the world about how to treat lower urinary tract disease or lower urinary tract signs. And so we could talk for an hour just about that part. But I think one thing that's really important for us to touch on here is how we communicate with the cat carers, with the people who are at home, frustrated, and not understanding necessarily why we have to do all this in order to make this behavior stop. So, you know, I was I was hoping that you could kind of give us a little bit of how you communicate with cat carers about this issue, what you use for education, you know, are you just having lots of follow-up and conversations? Do you have materials that you give them? What's the best way that you found to sort of get through to people about the importance of continuing to work on this issue. So you're talking about following up specifically, or are you talking about at the initial 
diagnostics so or let's start with at that initial visit and then maybe you know when when we're talking about whether we haven't gotten that cystocentesis yet or we've gotten right. one and we're waiting for results that that initial sort of shove that we're doing into the problem with the client and we'll get to follow up in a minute okay so with the you know the initial thing as 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 uh, we, we've already talked about is that, wow, you know, I'm really glad you brought him in. Uh, he's being really brave and showing you this because there's something that's upsetting him. And, and it's, it could be that he's got bladder owie or he could have head owie. And, mm-hmm. um, and we need to help and take, figure this out. Really emphasizing the, the reason you're here is because you care. And yeah. I'm really glad you brought, you brought him because if we're really focused and, and, validate their caring because people who don't care don't show up. Right. You know? Yeah. And, and people who, who are totally at the end of their rope relinquish. So yeah. we've got that sweet spot there. And I mean, this is, I'm not now talking about the person. Uh, it doesn't matter. So we've, you know, really validating people, making them feel good about the fact that they uh, make it, that they brought their cat in that I see that they, they love their cat and I appreciate them for that. And that goes a long way, no matter what the condition or reason, you know, is or the reason they br- they're bringing their cat in. Yeah. Then um, looking at the, uh, so there's some things we need to do. The first thing we need to do is make him comfortable, him or her comfortable. Because if you've ever had a toothache, you don't want to have the lecture on, we're going to take some radiographs and we find out if you need endodontics, we'll have a conversation about the difference of costs of endodontics versus this, that, or all you want is, you know, take that mm, tooth out because it's, you know, it's killing me. You know, so if we deal yeah. with the pain first, let's freeze this first for you. And then we get there. You feel, how do you feel now? Oh, I feel a lot better. Thanks. You know, thanks, Dr. Toothsome. And, mm-hmm. and okay, now we can talk about what this could be or could not be, right? So we need to, uh, and that's the validating the client and getting the cat who's their reason for being there out of discomfort. And we need to obviously get a sample of the urine because it'll tell us what's going on. We may need to do some other tests, like, like uh, we need, may need to take some x-rays to see if there's some stones or something. But let's start with the urinalysis and, and see, you know, it's possible we may have to do a culture, whatever. But the, the most important thing right now is we've got them out of discomfort, given them some fluids. Going to ask you to, um, you know, while while we're waiting on this urinalysis results, or let's say we didn't get that urine sample because he's empty, he's comfortable. You know, we'll get you to bring him back in a couple of days, and uh, to to um, uh, to get that sample. In the meanwhile, let's let's see what he what he thinks of these diets. These are, these will help make his bladder feel more comfortable because the they you know we don't need to go into the details of that. But and then we work from there. But always validating validating the client. Yeah, that's a really good reminder. So much of the time where we can be annoyed, I think, at the client for waiting so long or for being frustrated and forget that there's a reason they're standing in front of us. And yeah. it's our job to help, not judge. And uh, and thank goodness that they actually came in. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that will obviously that goes a long way in the follow up, too. But, you know, at that initial presentation and that those initial conversations, it just seems like that's a time when we can make or break it for these cats. Because if we, if we don't respond to their, their parents in the way that they feel they need to be communicated with, we're going to ruin all chance of follow-up. Yeah. 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 And this is an interest, an interesting point too. We don't work for the client. Nobody goes into veterinary school because they want to work for clients. 
we all go into veterinary school because our dream in going to, into veterinary school is to help animals because we love animals. It's that simple. Somewhere in school, we get told the client makes the decisions. No, they don't. Yeah. I don't know who ever dreamt that up, but no, they don't. We are the doctors and, and, you know, we make the recommendations and we don't need to give 16 choices to the client. The client didn't go to veterinary school. Yeah. They have no idea of making, you know, I, I remember one scenario and this is true uh, when I was just, I was shocked, a very capable, excellent veterinarian to whom, because I, I've never done dogs, uh, taking care of dogs. I referred my dentist to, and he took his two dogs in for dental care. And that veterinarian said, well, here are the three different types of anesthesia we could use. There's this one. It costs this much. There's this one. It costs this much. There's this one. It costs this much. Which one do you want? Wait, what? <laughs> and so how is that any different than us saying, well, we could do nothing. We could do fluids and, and antispasmodics. We could do a urinalysis. We could do... It's up to us to make the recommendation. We're the doctors. We're the ones who went to school. And then the client's choice is yes or no. Yeah. But it's up to us to, to make what we think is the best. Yeah. And, and that does not mean the Cadillac. Right. Unless the Cadillac is the best. And so another thing I remember being told in school is never, ever answer the question, what would you do if it was your cat? Heck, that's the only one that matters. Yeah, I know. That's I... the only one that matters because I'm going to do unnecessary tests on my cat. I'm going to do, but I'm going to do what I think is best. Yeah. End of story. Yeah. And that's what we should be. It's unethical for us to recommend anything other than what we think is best for their particular cat. Yeah. I love that. And I feel exactly the same way. I answer that question all the time and I can hear my professors, you know, yelling at me. Screening. Yeah. So I don't know what happened in school that, 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 that's anyway. So yeah. we don't, work, we don't work for the client. And that's why we say, it's like, if your doctor says to you, if you know, well, you, uh, you can't, we can't do this test on you today because you've eaten and you need to be fasted for 12 hours. Come back tomorrow morning. Don't eat anything after midnight and we'll do the test. We just go, oh, okay, I'll be here. Yeah. And the same, this, and, and why is it any different? We can't get urine on your cat right now. You know, we need to see him in two days. Uh, so let's bring, bring him back in two days. Oh, okay. Yeah. And as we, the extra motivation, you've already paid for the sample. So you've already paid for the test. So see right. ya. We yeah. know, we know what's best. We don't have to be apologetic about yeah. it because we no. know that it's the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Did you know that Royal Canin offers integrated care to help veterinary recommendations and protocols? Royal Canin provides tools to deliver breakthrough at-home screening and targeted nutrition for feline urinary issues. It's a smart way to connect pet owners to their cat's health care. Visit Royal Canin's online portal today to learn more. Okay, so, you know, as we wrap up here, uh, I would like to ask you in the, you know, in that vein of client communication and the importance of involving each cat carer in the future plan for these cats, 
it's one thing to have them right in front of you and to convince them through good communication that these are the things that we need to do. But so many of these cats are lost to follow up, I think, for a lot of people because they get better and the, the, they just disappear until there's a problem again. And so often there will be a problem again. So what are your tips, if you have any, for inspiring their parents to be involved caregivers, to um, stay in touch with us, to come back for follow-ups, to stick with the diets. Do you have anything you can share with us about that? Yeah. So this is really, really exciting. Given that, you know, especially with an indoor cat, the client may not notice if there's multiple cats or simply the fact that we're all busy off in our own little worlds and we don't see our cats every single time they're in the litter box. And even if they do, as we've been speaking, one of mine was just peeing in a litter box right next to me. And I was not, I listened to the length of his, his voiding. <laughs> and true cat so, person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So looking for those lower urinary tract signs, we want to be thinking about hematuria and hematuria isn't always macroscopic. It may be microscopic. And so uh, we can use the company called uh, Blue Care has created these hematuria granules that you just sprinkle on the litter and it's a royal canine that is distributing them. And these are really great because if a client puts these on the litter, if what, after a cat has had a problem uh, twice a month and w- watches to see if the granules change color to, you know, varying stages of blue, then they can call you. Okay. And again, the cat's bladder might be empty because if they're having a problem, they've got small amounts, but at least you're kept in the know. And then they can drop them off one morning and you can collect a sample and see what else might be going on. Or alternately, let's say you have got a cat with idiopathic cystitis or not alternately in the same vein, you've got somebody with idiopathic cystitis as opposed to somebody who's maybe had a cystotomy or, and you want to follow up, is the blood decreasing? Is, are things healing properly? Or as somebody who's had been obstructed because of struvite or whatever, even, even idiopathic cystitis plugs, uh, related plugs, whatever reason. So not following up on an acute problem, but rather looking at something chronically with idiopathic cystitis, we're looking at env- making environmental changes in uh, mm. meeting that the environmental needs of a cat and how successful has that been? And you may have done everything in the world and the cat's still stressed, but we need to make sure that we've at least been doing that stuff. And let's say you've done it and the cat is still, oh my gosh, those granules are turning blue again. And, and white is no no blood. They're turning blue again. Then I need to, he's, he's having problems. Can he at least get some pain relief or something like that? Right. So it's, yeah. so, you know, you get better client compliance because the client's We'll see the problem before the cat, without the cat having to come and pee on their shoes or something like that right. to get them to notice it. So it's it that's really um, that that's a, a much more proactive way of of doing things. Yeah, I I love that because so many times we just say, "Well, call us if there's a problem," and like you said, they don't necessarily know there's a problem until it's what they see as dire. Um, but but also because it keeps them thinking like, oh, I'm going to do this step and then I'll be aware if there's a problem. And that is telling them from the beginning that this is a chronic issue and that it requires monitoring. And maybe there will never be another episode. And that's the best case scenario there. But staying on top of it like that is just part of the deal. 
And, and uh, it beats the heck out of uh, um, hauling the cat in anytime sure you think does. there might be a problem. You you uh, and, and then it turns out there's not. They will bring their cats in if they see that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's because these people care or they wouldn't be using the granules in the first place. Right. Yeah. They're not just going to sit on it and go, well, it's, you know, huh, well, that, well, just, these are pretty granules. I, like <laughs> yeah. I paid for these um, and now I'm not going to use them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. And another way in which they're really great is given that, you know, when we do, uh, when we do cystocentesis, you know, I'm sure it's happened to you. I know it's happened to me a million and one times where you put the needle in the bladder and you see a swirl of blood and therefore, you know, you don't know, you know, that, that, there's some iatrogenic, but you don't know if all the blood is iatrogenic yeah. or not. And sometimes there's not a swirl of blood. Sometimes, you know, you could still be getting some blood that doesn't have that distinct swirl. Yeah. But still is iatrogenic. So then, you know, you send granules home with them and ask them in two days to sprinkle them on the litter. And it, you know, not right away because there's still going to be some bleeding, but two days later to sprinkle them on the litter and see whether the granules change color. I mean, sure, you can use a prayer and gravel. Sure, you can try and use some cellophane on top of the, the litter. Good luck on that one. Yeah. But you, this way, you use the cat's normal mineral-based litter. You know, it can't be something fun and funky. It's got to be, you know, a mineral-based uh, litter. And to see whether uh, there's a, a change, in, in which case, bring them in. Yeah. You know. Yeah, we're encouraging them to think proactively instead of reactively. Yeah. And, yeah. and one thing that I think, you know, in the in the client communication piece um, that we were talking about before that can be very uh, challenging is, let's say a kitty has the same clinical signs as they did six months ago. Is it the same problem? Not necessarily. Right. So, and clients, it's very difficult to convince clients, or it's the same as if you've got a different cat in the household, same clinical signs. It's the same thing, you know, if you've got somebody who's cat one vomits and, and you work that up and it's blah, blah, and cat two vomits and the client doesn't want to work it up because they assume it's the same as cat one. But it could be, of course, something completely different, you know, or if they know that it was uh, idiopathic cystitis and that, yeah, they were uncomfortable for a few days and then it went away, they may choose to not um, bring the cat in again. But there are other things that could be causing the same clinical signs. And that's where we have to pull on the client's curiosity, uh, try and try and encourage their curiosity in, gosh, I'm seeing some blood in the urine, or I'm seeing these, these, or the color changes in the granules. I'm not actually seeing blood. Um, but I, and I'm seeing, or I'm seeing the cat, um, doing these behaviors and what are the, what is it, what could it be? Uh, because cats, here's another fun fact. Many of us don't think about cats have mm-hmm. prostate glands and, uh, they can get prostatitis or prostatic abscesses or cats can get vaginitis and things like that. They can also, other reasons for, for hematuria, uh, would be, um, stones in the ureters, uh, could be a, um, a cyst or something else in the in the kidneys it could also be something completely non-urinary tract related that isn't psychological um or stress related uh such as uh, a bleeding disorder a coagulation disorder you know yeah. Yeah, they're rare as hen's teeth thank thankfully but um i wouldn't even know where to go with that <laughs> but, but you know, the common things are you know when you hear um hoof beats think horses but the occasional zebra might run through yeah, absolutely. And it's that's one thing that I know keeps me motivated to go to work is figuring out, um, you know, wh- when you're seeing that zebra and yeah. um, and not letting it get away because yeah. the incidence is not zero. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that those are that's such good advice, um, Dr. Margie. Thank you so much for all of your time. But for this um, for our last 
little minute or two of our, what we call our keep it brief segment, I would like to ask you, um, what keeps you curious and coming to work every day? Well, what keeps me, me curious is, uh, gosh, you know, is, is nature and biology is so magnificent. It's, there's so many, there are so many things I don't know and I'd like to know and I'd like to learn. And even though I have, I love 72% to 75% dark chocolate with nothing added, you know, to it. There are a million flavors in the candy shop. And before I die, I'd like to taste other, other things as well. So, you know, to learn about other aspects, but still, you know, what makes cats tick and, and who and what a cat is and watching clients too, you know, cause, cause it's, it's so interesting and trying to learn better how to motivate people. And that, that includes um, the people you work with too. Absolutely. Yeah. Those are great reasons. So Thank you again, Dr. Margi. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us and feel like I just want to mine you for all this information about cats and cat medicine because um, there, this is definitely a situation in which curiosity helps the cat. And uh, that's a much better story <laughs> <laughs> than the one we grew up with. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. so thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks again to our sponsor and to today's guest for joining us, and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please make sure that you subscribe, rate, and review. We would appreciate if you leave us all of the stars. You can also listen to podcasts on our website at cliniciansbrief.com slash podcasts, and you can drop us a line at podcasts at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief Partner Podcasts is a Brief Media production.